And uh, we'll turn to John's Gospel, chapter 2, and we'll read this morning verses 23 through 25, which is the text for our sermon this morning. We continue to make our way through John's Gospel, verse by verse, passage by passage. Beginning there at verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Amen. Let us pray together. Lord, again, we do confess that we need you, for without you we can do nothing. Without you, our ears are dull, our eyes are blind, and our hearts are cold. So we pray that you would give us eyes to see the wonderful things in your law, in your word, and in your gospel, that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive the message therein. All to your glory, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. You may be seated. So apostasy is real. Uh, A departure, a falling away from the Christian faith does happen, it has happened, and probably will happen in the future. Apostasy is just that, it is leaving the Christian faith, denying the Lord Jesus Christ, one has previously professed. Um, You can perhaps think of people in your own experience that you've known who have done such a thing, people who perhaps have even led in church office, have denied the Christian faith and now live in the world as other unbelievers, denying the Christ that they once professed. Uh, There is one that comes to my mind when I think of this, a man who uh, would at one point say that he was a born-again evangelical, a man who wanted to learn more about the original text of Scripture in the Hebrew and the Greek, who went to Moody Bible College, who went to Wheaton College, who eventually went to Princeton. And after that, because of doubts that came into his mind, he became what he says was a liberal Christian. Uh, He adopted the tenets of textual criticism, and then eventually he became an atheist, an unbeliever. And this man, Bart Ehrman, uh, now teaches religious studies and has for some time at Chapel Hill in North Carolina. And if you've ever listened to his lectures, you have to listen carefully at times to hear what is going on in them. He's obviously um, relaying to his audience the doubts that he has had for some time. It really is a sad situation. And so when we think about things like that, whether it's a professor or just a friend that we've known, what are we to make of those who make a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ only to deny Him later. Do we believe in once saved, always saved? We do, but more accurately, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. Those who make a true profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will never fall away. So what are we to say? Well, in 1 John 2, 19, it says this, They went out from us because they were not of us. In other words, such a person was never truly a Christian in the first place. They were never truly born again. They did not have the seed of God 
as 1 John calls it, within them. And why do I bring this up? Well, in our text, verses 23 through 25 of John 2, deals with this issue. We see that there are different types of faith and that not all types of faith are saving or true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And also we see the point, I think, of the text here is that Jesus commits himself to those who truly commit to him, to those who have true faith in him. And so as we think about that in this text, we should be thinking about this question. What, in fact, is true saving faith? And, of course, do I have saving faith? Do you have saving faith? We should be asking ourselves that about ourselves as we read such passages of Scripture. And uh, as we answer this, this morning we'll have three headings. The first one is that uh, we see here that those who are rejected by Jesus are rejected for an insufficient faith. Their faith is not the faith that God requires, that Jesus himself requires. If you look at verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, again, he's still there, that's the scene. It's during the feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. And so, remember, John the Baptist has already given his messages about the Christ, about this Jesus of Nazareth, who he is, that he's sent of God, he's the Lamb of God, he takes away the sins of the world. And as we find Jesus at later Passovers uh, preaching, standing up and speaking about who he is, who sent him, there's no doubt that Jesus had conversations at the very least proclaiming who he was, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so there was that message at this time, but also he performed miracles. We saw his first miracle recorded in John, turning water into wine at Cana. And so when or after these people at the feast saw Jesus perform these miracles, it was then that they had a faith in Jesus. And uh, for them, seeing was believing Now, as we've already read this morning from Hebrews chapter 11, um, alluded to there with Abraham, seeing is not believing. Abraham believed God. He heard God. He heard the promises and he believed. And that goes all the way back to Genesis 15 and verse 6. And so in Hebrews 11, 1, we're told of what faith and its substance is. It is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith hears God's promise and takes God at his word. It does not wait for evidences such as miracles. And there's more to it than that. But uh, as as we read in scripture, as we look at John elsewhere in the Bible, um, we will find that miracles serve the purpose of strengthening a believer's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the same time, they are evidences, as we call them, the badges. You know, an officer flashes his badge. The miracles give testimony that the prophet, and in the Gospels, the prophet of prophets, the Lord Jesus, is who he says he is. And so, at the same time, faith takes God at his word. And so, if you read there, it says they believe. 
In verse 23, they believed in his name, that he was who he said he was, when they saw the signs which he did. But in verse 24, it says Jesus did not commit himself to them. And uh, if, you, if you have that word commit there, verse 24, in the original, it's the same as believed in verse 23. Um, pistuo, it's the word for faith, I believe. And uh, so it, it literally is a play, it's a play on words. And literally it says they did not believe it or they did believe in his name in verse 23. In verse 24, he did not, not believe or entrust himself to them. So he didn't commit himself. So I like the translation I have in uh, the New King James here. He did not commit himself and trust himself to them. And by the way, remember uh, that when it comes to um, being approved by God, when it comes to being accepted by God, that's the way it should be presented to sinners we often talk about, well, I've accepted Jesus. And well-meaning people mean I've, I've received Him, I've trusted in Him, and that's good. But as Ephesians 1 and verse 6 says, it is Jesus who makes us accepted in the Beloved. You know, we come into this world as sinners, so we must be received by God. We can't be received by God because of our sin. And so how is that sin taken away? It's through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And once we receive the benefits of what he has done, we'll talk about that later, but once we receive the benefits of what Christ has done, then we are made accepted in the beloved and before God. And so Jesus did not commit himself to them because their faith was not saving faith. Now, if I tell you that, you might be asking the question, well, how did Jesus know? And uh, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is. You know how he knows, right? He's God. But the text tells us, John gives commentary in verse 24. It says, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. There's no doubt that Jesus knows all men. You know, he knows our names elsewhere. He even talks about the Heavenly Father knowing, for those of us who still have hair, he knows how many hairs we have. He knows how many we had at one time. I've lost quite a few over the past 10 years and I'm losing some even this day. But uh, Jesus and the Father and the Spirit, because they are God, they, they know us intimately. And John says here, he, he knew all men, but the inference is he knows what's in the heart of men. And in verse 25 it says, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So he didn't have the need for this third party credibility to come to him and say, well, you don't know that person. They say they believe in you, but they're still doing this and they've lived this kind of lifestyle. No, Jesus already knows. And so what is going on here? Well, this is Jesus's knowledge. His knowledge is the knowledge of God. And God has all knowledge. It is that uh, attribute we call omniscience, omniscience, all knowledge. God knows everything. And if you don't have this book, uh, you need to get it if it's still available. You can find it in PDF form, whatever. A.W. Pink's book, The Attributes of God. And uh, here's what he says about God's omniscience. He says, he, that is God, knows everything. He knows everything possible, everything actual, all events and all creatures of the past 
the present and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. That's amazing, isn't it? I think it was Spurgeon in a sermon one time talked about the sunlight shining through the cracks of an old barn. And you know, there's hay in the barn. And uh, as a kid, our carpet evidently was dirty. I saw the same thing. I saw the particles of dust right next to our window when the sun would shine through it. And he's like, God knows every speck, every particle of dust. He knows everything. Well, think about what Scripture says, the inspired commentary on God's omniscience. In Hebrews 4.13, it says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so it joins God's omniscience with the judgment day to come. And that's the effect it should have on us. We should be thinking about that. God knows every detail about us. And yes, there is a day of judgment to come. In fact, it would take an all-knowing being to judge us rightly, not only knowing our motives, but knowing what they are, all of them, and our actions and so forth. Psalm 139 in verse 2 says, You know, this is David, You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. And are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He knows where we're going, where we've been. He knows our thoughts, the words we're going to speak before we speak them. And in Ezekiel 11, 5, it says, The Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, the prophet Ezekiel, and said to me, Speak, thus says the Lord, thus You have said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. God knows our thoughts. He's the searcher of our thoughts. And uh, we who are Christian once were among the wicked. Now we've been forgiven. We aren't labeled as the wicked. We still can do wicked things, sinful things. But for the unbelieving person, the wicked hate this doctrine. In Hosea 7, 2, it says, They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. And so then the question is, what effect does this omniscience of God have upon us? In fact, when it says here that Jesus knew what was in man, it should stir us a little bit. Yes, it should make us a little uncomfortable because God knows what you did the other day. He knows what you thought. He knows what you said. Perhaps even this morning. He knows all of my sinful thoughts, word, and deeds. But at the same time, for the Christian, this should bring comfort. Because the fact that God knows everything about us, He knows our situation. He knows how to deal with us. He knows our hearts even better than we know our hearts. In Jeremiah 17, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? It's desperately wicked. So God knows what we need even better than we think we know what we need ourselves. And this attribute of God here we see applies to the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew what was in man. And remember Jesus, as He came to this earth, was born of the virgin who was overshadowed from on high. The Holy Spirit 
oversaw her. The Lord Jesus came and he took upon himself human flesh. And as our doctrinal statements put it, as the creeds of long ago put it, he remains to this day uh, one person with two distinct natures and separately joined together. The divine nature and the human nature. So that we call him sometimes what? The God-man. And so that's how Jesus here and forevermore is omniscient. And the scriptures, in fact, John's gospel will go on to testify this about Jesus himself. In John 1.47, we've already seen uh, that Nathan, or rather Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. And Nathanael said, How do you know? How do you know me? Well, now we know. In John 5.42, he said this to certain of the Jews, certain Jews, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. In John 16.30, the disciples, they go to Jesus and they tell him, we are certain that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. And of course, in John 21, after the resurrection, after Jesus approaches Peter, who had denied Jesus three times, gives him the opportunity to affirm his love and commitment back to Jesus. He says, do you love me? And Peter, he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Of course, Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Revelation 2.23 It is said, Jesus said it, I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And so he is the good shepherd in John 10 and verse 14 who says, I know my sheep and am known by my own. He knows us in a far greater, unmeasurable way than we know him. Right, He knows us as only God and our good shepherd could know us. And so then since Jesus knows all men, and since He knew who actually had true faith and who did not, He did not commit Himself to the ones who had no true saving faith. And that is to say that Jesus does commit himself to those who do have true saving faith. And so, let's talk for a moment then about the faith which Jesus rejects. We've already hinted at it. Um, Remember that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the requirement in order to be saved, in order to be justified, to have your sins completely forgiven forever. And uh, we've already seen this in John chapter 1. It says in John 1.11, He came unto His own, and His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in His name. So if you believe in the biblical way and receive the Lord Jesus Christ, you become a child of God. Ephesians 2 and verse 8 says, For by grace are you saved 
through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's not of works. It's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. So we're saved by grace, God's grace, through faith. And so this immediately throws out agnosticism, saying you don't know if there is a God, atheism, outrightly rejecting the existence of God, and every other form of unbelief. I would put in that category liberalism, liberal theology, the liberal Christian, because after all, they don't believe in the miracles or divinity of Christ and who he says he is. But there are many others who have made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that faith, according to the Bible, was insufficient. Well, what, what does that look like? What are those types of insufficient faith? Well, there is merely the intellectual faith. A merely intellectual faith. You know, there's a belief that God's word is true. There's a belief that the gospel is true. But that in and of itself does not save. Uh, think about this. In Acts chapter 26, Paul's before King Agrippa. And um, in verse 27, Paul asked Agrippa, Do you believe the prophets? And Paul says, I know that you do believe. And Agrippa says to him, You almost persuaded me to become a Christian. He believed in the prophets, but he wasn't a Christian. James 2.19 says, you believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. And so there is a faith, a certain type of belief. They know who Jesus is. But that faith never manifested itself in repentance. Turning away from evil to God. And that it was merely a factual intellectual faith. Also, there's a temporal faith. There is that faith which says you believe in the Lord Jesus and all of the assertions and statements and propositions of the gospel. And uh, that faith doesn't last. Remember the parable in Matthew 13 of the sower. In verse 20, it says, But he who received the seed, the, the gospel spoken, on stony places... This is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. When tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. That is, immediately he turns back. He turns away from Christ. He turns away from the faith and goes back to the life he once lived. So it's a temporal faith. It's temporary. In 1 John 2.19, again, it says there they went out from us. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, then they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So there's a merely intellectual faith, a temporal faith. There's a just a general faith. You hear that in our day and time. You know, you got to have faith. You got to have faith in something. Or I have faith in God, but who knows what God is? Who knows what he's done? What does our text say? Now, there are those who knew Jesus. They met Him. They, they had heard the claims about His identity. They saw Him perform miracles. And yet Jesus didn't commit Himself to them. Because He knew what was in their hearts. He knew what was in man. This faith was insufficient. 
Maybe they were like the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, where Jesus has this interaction, and this guy obviously is basing his acceptance by God on himself, his own works, his own righteousness, which the Bible says is as filthy rags. And Jesus says, well, you've done all these things, now, now you lack one thing. Sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And of course, he didn't want to do that, so the text tells us he walked away very sad. He was close. Or maybe he's like the disciples later in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, we're told that Jesus started saying these hard things, you know, that he is the bread who came down from heaven. You must eat his flesh. You must drink his blood in order to have life eternal. And of course, those disciples with quotation marks around them, they say, these things are hard. Who can understand these things? And in John 6, verse 66, it says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And that is to say, those disciples possessed a faith that was insufficient, and therefore they were not true disciples. They were disciples of another kind. And so unbelief will not save any man. A merely intellectual faith will not save any man. A temporary faith will not save any man. And neither will a selective faith. You know, just cherry picking the verses you like in Scripture and perhaps uh, buying trinkets with those Scriptures on them and things like that. That won't save you. So then the question is, what type of faith saves a man? What type of faith saves a woman, a child, from the wrath to come. Well, let's talk about that. The faith which Jesus accepts. Now that's not in our text, but we can't just stay here. I can't just leave this with you, right? Um, the Bible does tell us what kind of faith is accepted by God. And this will unfold as we move through John's Gospel. But for this morning, let me just note several things. Uh, saving faith. The faith that Jesus accepts, the one that is accepted by God Himself, has three parts. There are three elements, three acts of saving faith. Well, what are they? Knowledge, assent, and trust. Uh, knowledge is one aspect of saving faith. And uh, in 1 Corinthians one twenty one, it says, For since... In the wisdom of God, the world, through wisdom, did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It's through the preached message that people believe in Jesus Christ and have the knowledge about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's through the gospel message itself. And so again, you think of the gospel. Uh, the gospel in the Bible it's full of propositions. It's full of these statements that uh, if you believe this, then this will be true of you. Things like this. You're a sinner. You can't save yourself. But God has taken the initiative. He sent His only begotten Son. And His only begotten Son, Jesus of Nazareth, He lived in your place and He died at your place on Calvary's cross. And so then the life and death of Jesus Christ serves to erase our bad record 
and give us his perfect record. That's what happens when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Romans 10, 17 puts it, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ or of God. Through the preached gospel message. And so there has to be this knowledge about what Paul in Ephesians calls the mystery. The mystery of the gospel. We can only know it because God has revealed it to us. He's revealed it through His prophets. He's revealed it through His words. He's revealed it through His apostles. And He continues to reveal it through the Word of God. Read, taught, and preached today. And so there has to be this knowledge about Jesus Christ. But also there's a scent. There is a conviction that this is true. There's an agreement. Okay, the Bible says this, I'm a sinner. Yes, the Bible says that there is this one true and living God. He's the creator over all. He sent His only begotten Son, the Father, that is. The second person of the Godhead, Jesus, came. He's born of a woman. He lived in my place. He lived and died. He was raised from the dead the third day. And so, true faith has knowledge, but it also has assent to the facts of the gospel. It says... That is saving faith. And here's the message. And it says, yes, I am a sinner. It says, yes, I am guilty. Yes, I cannot save myself. Yes, Jesus did come. Yes, he was born of a virgin and so on. So think about that. Those are two important elements of true saving faith. Knowledge and assent. And perhaps you've heard preachers talk about you got head knowledge but you don't have heart knowledge. There's truth to that because of the third thing here, the third element of saving faith. There's not only knowledge and assent, there is also trust. Trust. And that's the difference between those who say they believe and don't truly believe and those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The element of trust. Trust And true saving faith is receiving Jesus Christ as He's offered in the Gospel. It is taking Jesus Christ as He's offered in the Gospel. It is receiving Him. It is grabbing Him, as we sometimes say, appropriating Him. It's resting on Jesus. We're not resting on our own um, resume. We're not resting on our own efforts, our own works. We're trusting That what God has said in the gospel about His Son is true. And that is to say that saving faith has an object. And for its object, it has Jesus Christ and Him alone. Not just the message. Not just the Bible. Not just the sermon. But Christ Himself. That's the trust element there. We trust in Him. You know, there's that old analogy of the, uh, the chair. You look at a chair and uh, you say, you know, someone told me this is called a chair. I think I remembered that and uh, I learned that in kindergarten. And uh, it is a chair. I, I agree with that. But will this chair hold me up? Well, if I go to sit down on that chair, I'm trusting that it will. And so what's You hear the gospel and you hear that um, Jesus is the Messiah and you affirm and you believe that Jesus is the Messiah and then you're all in, you're trusting in nothing else. That's saving faith. 
And of course, that saving faith will manifest itself in a changed life. First John talks about that, not a perfect life. But Paul, the apostle, who had this self-righteous disposition before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, was converted and came to say this about Jesus. He didn't just refer to the gospel, he called it his gospel. He didn't just refer to God, he said, my God. And in Galatians 2.20, he said this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's saving faith. You see? So knowledge, assent, and trust are the true elements of saving faith. And so evidently, at least at this time, those that are mentioned here who believed in His name in verse 23, they did not have trust in Jesus Christ. And how does Jesus know? Because He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's the second person of the Godhead, the Trinity. And so as we read passages like this, as I preach a sermon like this, you have to ask this question. I ask you this question. Do you have real faith in Jesus Christ? Not only do you know the gospel in its elemental form, no doubt, you don't have to be an expert in theology to be saved. There's the thief on the cross. And in fact, Jesus said in Matthew 18, you must become like a little child into the kingdom of heaven, which means you come as a child, which means you have no spiritual resume. You probably do not have great knowledge about the gospel, but there is this element of trust. You're not approaching God saying, look what I did. Look what I did. Look what I did. You're saying, God, have mercy on me. Jesus said this. I believe it. I put all my trust, all my faith in him. And that's not to say that the Christian, the true child of God, never struggles with his faith or her faith. Do you ever doubt your salvation? You know, when I was in seminary, the president of my seminary at that time, he, he said that it kind of scared him a little bit that he has never doubted his salvation. And I thought, that is great for you. But I think I just doubted mine last week. And I didn't resent him for that. Okay, because we're, we're all different. We're all at different stages. And God prepares us for different things. I, you know, I have to understand that. But there have been times where I've doubted my salvation. And we saw that... Um, Two Sunday nights ago with Asaph in Psalm 73, he had that struggle with his faith where he saw in the world the prosperity of the wicked. Had he served God in vain? But then he was reminded of the, the word of God and the judgment to come. God set him straight. But do you have real saving faith? And maybe you have issues trusting in men. And that's not a bad thing. By the way, uh, we're told not to put our confidence in men. But we're told to put our confidence and our faith and our trust in the Lord God who made heaven and earth. And in particular, in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And so, you need to know this. Once you come to Jesus for real, 
Jesus commits. Once you come to Christ for real, He is all in. Never to leave you. Never to forsake you. He will entrust Himself to you. And if you're a child of God, if you've made that commitment, He has entrusted Himself to you. He has never left you. And He never will. And maybe at times you think, where is God? I don't feel God in my life. Look at my life. I I struggle with my faith. But know this. Christ has gone nowhere. God has gone nowhere. Consider what Jesus says in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. In Hebrews 7.25, it says about Christ, He is able to save us to the uttermost. To those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. The argument is, He is able, and He will save us to the uttermost, even to the end. Why? He's in heaven, at God the Father's right hand, interceding on our behalf, praying for us. And guess what? When he was on this earth in his ministry, he was praying for his disciples. In fact, he tells Peter in Luke twenty two thirty one, 31, he warns Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. You're going to be put through the mill. You're going to be shaken. But what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, but I have prayed for you. That your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. In John 10, 28, Jesus said, I give them eternal life. He's the good shepherd. He gives eternal life to his sheep and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The psalmist in Psalm 121. He says, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. Of course, Paul says in Philippians 1, in verse 6, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. If you commit your life, your very soul for eternity to Jesus Christ, He commits to you. And He will keep that commitment. For in 2 Timothy, Paul says this in chapter 1 and verse 12, For this reason I also also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that He is able to keep what I have committed to Him Have you committed your life? Have you committed your final state in eternity to Jesus Christ? If you have, He has committed the same to you. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ, the One whom You sent, the One whom You strengthened during His earthly ministry who 1 Peter 2 says, entrusted himself to you. We pray, O Father, that everyone in here who has not entrusted themselves to Jesus would do that, that you would make by your Spirit your presence 
and the assurance of that salvation known to them. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.